When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Thelman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Like many of you, I find it hard to stick to just one obsession in the aquarium hobby. As you probably know by now, I've had a long-term love affair with the brackish water habitats of the tropical world. There's a lot of misconceptions about brackish water aquariums floating around out there, as you probably know. And the hobby interpretation of brackish water habitats has impacted not only the technique, but the aesthetic interpretation of these habitats as well. And that's kind of sad. Although there's a good amount of information on brackish water habitats from which brackish water fishes come, in the hobby, with rare exception of some biotope enthusiasts, we've sort of distilled brackish water aquarium aesthetics down to white aragonitic sand, a few rocks, and maybe some hardy plants. And it's been mired in that aesthetic hell for decades. And then there's that whole perception thing. I think the perception among many aquarium hobbyists was, or is, that brackish is more tricky to keep than freshwater, yet easier than a reef tank, yet offers little in the way of excitement on first glance. I mean, the fish selection and availability has not exactly been stellar, with many dealers hesitant to stock brackish fishes for simple lack of demand and interest in the fact that, well, you want to keep them in a brackish water aquarium. Now, sure. Quite frankly, with many of the fishes that have been perceived to be brackish by hobbyists are either, they're either, you know, purely from freshwater habitats like glassfish and some rainbows or have some populations that are from brackish, which are seldom imported. Of course, you have things like scats and monos that do find their way into the hobby, often kept in the wrong conditions in the dealer and along the chain of custody. Then uh, there's fishes like mollies, which are urahaline, or ca- in other words, capable of tolerating a wide range of salt concentrations, with the majority being found in pure freshwater. Salt, in many cases, is simply used for health purposes. Oh, and I can't even begin to tell you the challenge I went through to source a group of bumblebee gobies a while back that were actually collected from a brackish water habitat. And even then, the species ID on the ones I had is not, and was not, and is not 100% with a few hobbyists insisting that the ones that I had were a pure freshwater species. And of course, when I do the research, I discovered that there are populations of certain species from both pure fresh and brackish. In fact, even from blackwater type habitats. So for somebody to to out and out look at a fish and say, oh, that's not brackish, not always the case. In fact, there's some kerosens like uh, uh, I forgot, now I'm drawing a blank, but I believe some of the species that you wouldn't expect, like I think it was the gold tetra or one of these species that actually, or Buenos Aires tetra is one of these that actually is found sometimes in brackish habitats in its native range. It's hard to say. Now, let's get back to the aquarium themselves. One of the biggest differences between the botanical style approach that we love to brackish aquariums and the more traditional approach of rock and crushed coral and oyster shell etc approach that people play with is that there's a variety of natural collateral benefits to the physical environment that you can realize by having materials like mangrove root sections branches and leaves in the water it's a big difference again it's moving less away from the not only the aesthetic issue but into the actual 
um, environmental parameters and so forth. So in my interpretation of brackish, uh, use of mangrove roots, branches and leaves virtually assures that you're going to not only be imparting some tannins into your water, which will color it, but they're going to provide those other collateral benefits as well, uh, such as the humic substances, etc. Now, in this instance, it's interesting is that the interesting thing is that tannins that come from mangrove wood and leaves will react with calcium and other alkaline compounds to produce an insoluble salt known as calcium tannate. It's the byproduct of this reaction that's fascinating because what it does is it releases calcium and other ions into the water, which actually serves to buffer the pH in the aquarium, something you wouldn't expect from, you know, brownish water and leaves and so forth. So yeah, oddly, having a bunch of wood and leaves in your brackish water tank will actually create a sort of stability that benefits your tank in ways you may not have even considered. Of course, that's just a water chemistry benefit. There's many biological benefits to this approach as we've discussed before. The hardest thing that we've had to do and continue to have to do is to change the perception among hobbyists that brackish water biotopes are these stark white sandy places with a few rocks and super clean water. Actually, many brackish water estuaries and lagoons are way different than we've portrayed them in our aquariums over the years. Trust me, I've been in a few and they're not the nicest, cleanest places you've seen. There's mud, leaf litter, and of course, mangroves. They're often turbid, brown-tinted waters with muddy, rich bottoms covered with decomposing leaves, lots of macro and microalgae, some plants, and often dominated by palms and mangroves again. Sometimes you'll find amazing mangrove growth, even in blackwater ecosystems, more reminiscent of the types of habitats we used to, you know, we're used to replicating in our in our aquariums. Mangroves are very diverse, very interesting plants. Yet, the aquarium world, of course, has its quirks and opinions about how things should be. Over the years, I've heard the warnings from people on attempting to replicate this type of brackish water habitat in the aquarium. It won't work in a brackish tank. It'll create anaerobic conditions, too much nutrient ionic imbalance, tinted water means dirty, etc., etc., etc. Man, this sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. A lot of naysaying without a lot of actual trying. That regurgitation syndrome that we talked about rears its ugly head again. You see that all over the brackish water world, just like you did in Blackwater a few years ago. And yes, the byproduct of our approach is that it just happens to have a different aesthetic too, by virtue of the materials that we work with. Less emphasis on sterile white sand and crystal clear water, and more emphasis on a functional representation of a tropic, uh, tropical brackish water ecosystem. Muddy, nutrient-rich substrate filled with decomposing mangrove leaves and stained a bit from tannins. Beautiful in a very different yet oddly compelling way. It's an evolution, a step forward out of the artificially induced restraints of this is how it's always been done. Another exploration into what the natural environment is really like and understanding, embracing, and appreciating its aesthetics, functionality, and richness. Richness, it's a good word actually. The bottom of this type of habitat, the substrate, and then the aquariums that represent it are, are typically covered with a layer of leaves or decomposing leaf litter, specifically mangrove leaf litter. This not only provides an aesthetically interesting substrate, it offers functional benefits as well, like imparting minerals, trace elements, and organic acids into the water. Mangrove leaf litter, like its freshwater counterpart, is the literal base for developing our brackish water food chain from which microbial, fungal, and crustacean growth will benefit. And of course, these leaves will impart some tannins into the water just as any other leaf will. Fungi and bacteria in brackish water and saltwater mangrove systems help you know, facilitate the decomposition of mangrove materials just like in their pure freshwater counterparts. 
Interestingly, in scientific surveys, it's been determined that bacterial counts are generally higher on attached mangrove leaves than they are on freshly fallen leaf litter. This is kind of interesting because ecologists feel that attached undamaged mangrove leaves don't release much tannin, which as we know might have some antibacterial properties as well, which I think is kind of interesting, right? Uh, something that we don't always think about. However, it's also been found that materials like humic acid, which are abundant in the mangroves, stimulate phytoplankton growth right there. Interesting, right? Yeah, kind of is. The leaves of mangroves, as they break down, become subject to both leaching of the compounds in their tissues, as well as microbial breakdown. Compounds like potassium and carbohydrates are commonly leached very quickly, followed by tannins. Fungi are the first responders to leaf drop in mangrove communities, followed by bacteria, which serve to break down the leaves further. So in summary, you have a very active microbial community in a brackish water aquarium uh, or a brackish water ecosystem in the wild for that matter. The management of a brackish water tank is surprisingly similar to that of a typical blackwater or botanical style aquarium. The biggest difference is the salt and perhaps a greater interest in a rich substrate. Now one parameter the hobbyists will argue about incessantly is specific gravity. I tend to favor one of two specific gravities in my brackish tanks, either 1.005 or 1.010. I've changed, uh, you know, over the past few years, having tried all types of ranges from as low as 1.004, all the, you know, to 1.008, and I finally I settled on 1.010 because it's a sort of sweet spot that many of the brackish water fishes that I'm interested in, like gobies, rainbow fishes, mollies, etc., seem to fare quite well at uh, this higher specific gravity, and the mangroves, of course, don't seem to have any problem with that either. Um, let's talk for a second about mangroves again. Let's talk about the mangroves and detritus, our old friend. One of the first decisions I made when I started to apply botanical style aquarium methodology to brackish was to not siphon out the organic debris and detritus, you know, catch-all phrase, right, that accumulates during the normal course of existence in any aquarium. My rationale was that the bulk of the material was fish waste uh, and, you know, broken down leaves and botanicals as opposed to uneaten food and stuff. And my whole point of my approach to brackish, you know, water mangrove aquariums is to create a simulation of the organic heavy exceedingly rich substrates in which they're found while still creating a manageable closed system that doesn't turn into a cesspool and you do that by fostering biological growth and diversity i kind of figured that i don't overfeed i don't overstock and i perform regular water exchanges on a weekly basis i employ practices which assure as much environmental consistency as possible and yeah the physical environment in my brackish water mangrove tanks uh, does have a very slight amount of fine organic debris or detritus on the substrate. I've purposely siphoned out the stuff before, and by crude estimation, I'd say that well over 80% of what actually is there accumulated on the substrate is the aforementioned botanicals and leaves in a decomposed state. It's a sort of mulch, if you will. I do see neurites and snails and some of the fishes, you know, foraging in, the, in that little leaf litter bed from time to time in most of my tanks, but it's not, this stuff is really not all that noticeable unless you look really carefully. Even in a, the simple brackish tank I have right now with mangroves and some Endler's live bears uh, using our new mangal substrate, which I'll talk about later, uh, there's bits and pieces of you know bark and, and roots and uh, stuff that falls off the mangroves constantly, and the fish spend most of their day foraging through that. It's pretty neat. I think these materials replicate to some extent the type of stuff you see in these rich substrates in which mangroves grow and thrive. If you recall from my many previous ramblings about this approach, we long ago decided to abandon the whole clean white sand thing in favor of a compound of fairly rich substrate materials, including marine biosediments, soils, 
an aragonitic sand, and occasionally a more coarse aragonite for the top dressing, a sort of a look if you want. Again, we've been using this successfully for years, and soon it's going to be released under the name Nature-Based Mangal, which is a mangrove habitat on our site. We think you're going to love it too. A few of you have already gotten a couple of test batches to try, and the reviews have been pretty pretty stellar, I must say. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Now, the reason for the selection of a rich substrate material back in the day was twofold. First, I wanted to create a functional mud-like substrate that would facilitate both denitrification and the ability to provide habitat for minute life forms. I felt that this would also be a more natural setting for brackish water, you know, aquariums. I, I knew that, or brackish water life forms, excuse me, I knew that mangroves would love it. My original intent years ago was to plant some cryptocarine ciliata, which is a species well known for its ability to adapt to a low salinity brackish water environment. I was going to try that, uh, that species and the plan was ultimately abandoned when I decided to increase the specific gravity to that 1.010, which is higher than the documented specific gravities at which this plant is known to survive, typically 1.002 to 1.005. Plus, it was a real pain in the ass to find that damn crib. And mangroves are way cooler anyway. So yeah, I went with the mangroves. <laughs> mangroves will win over almost everything in my world, as you, as you know, plant-wise. <laughs> There's a certain faith you need to have when you employ this type of rich substrate in an aquarium, uh, such as, you know, even having that faith before anything is physically rooted in it. Because as you know by now, mangrove propagals, those little cucumber or pickle looking things that we that we tend to buy at the pet shops or fish stores, uh, don't have roots on them yet. And they put out the roots whenever they're damn ready. And then, and only then, do the roots make contact with the substrates. This could take months. You can't shove a rootless propagal into the sand, any kind of sand, and expect it to sprout what it'll do is just turn to mush over time. I know from a lot of time playing with mangroves in reef systems and other kinds of aquariums that this process can take many months, of course, given the depth of the tank. What you often do is you secure it above the, above the substrate using a whatever means, a zip tie, magnet, feeding clip, whatever, whatever you got. And the, the uh, propagal will gradually put down roots that will extend down into the substrate. It could take a while for touchdown, as I call it, to occur. Patience is mandatory, but it's well worth the wait because what happens is you get those thick prop roots that mangroves are so well known for and, and having them root correctly is amazing because then you'll get these strong plants that'll look beautiful over time. Now, if you are patient, you'll be rewarded. Again, it'll take months, but your mangroves will do what they do in nature. They put down prop roots, grow many leaves, some of which dry up and fall. That's just part of what they do. And of course, we do allow the leaves to accumulate on the bottom, just like in the natural habitats that we're attempting to replicate to a certain extent. You don't pick up the leaves when they fall down. Mangrove ecosystems are remarkably complex, diverse systems which process nutrients by decomposing and utilizing organic matter. Many organisms like fungi, bacteria, even sponges work together to utilize the vast you know, food resources that are produced in these habitats. And larger creatures like crabs, amphipods, etc. break apart leaf bits providing a gross dismantling service that contributes to the decomposition of these materials leading to detritus. That's sweet. Our friend detritus. Yeah, if you want to move beyond the absurd, hyper-sanitized hobby version of a brackish water aquarium, you need to understand how these ecosystems work make some mental shifts to accept the appearance, the challenges, and the obligation to observe, test, and maintain these systems over the long haul. And you need to deploy, as with anything we do, a shit ton of patience. You just can't rush things. And nor would you want to, because every phase of a mangrove aquarium establishing itself is amazing. Are you up for it? You can do this, easily. 
go get to it. You can contribute a lot to the ever-evolving world of the botanical-style brackish water aquarium. Join us. We're there waiting for you at the delta of the intersection between science and art. That's where we play. Hope you play there too. Stay inspired. Stay curious. Stay patient. Stay brave. Stay resourceful. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tan and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin. Thank you.